chapter 10. We're going to read the whole chapter, 21 verses. Verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. My natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sounds of his words, And as soon as I heard the sounds of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face to the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, As a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, 
I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that this morning now as we turn to the Holy Scriptures, and particularly to this chapter, that you would give us a profound sense of reality this morning. Because, Lord, you know how we often come here with our minds full of unreality and distracted by so many things. Lord, please help us to pierce through distraction and unreality this morning as we focus our attention on the scriptures of truth. Help us to see into realms that we can't easily see or normally see. Help us to reflect, Lord, and grasp the things that you want us to grasp from the scriptures. Help us not to miss anything. And may we truly be changed by what we read, and not just read as a for intellectual curiosity, Lord, but read as those who hunger and thirst for truth and to know you in a deeper way. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before jumping into this fascinating chapter, Daniel 10, I'd like to just briefly review and summarize where we are in the book of Daniel in our series, where we came from, and where we're going. The book of Daniel was written sometime around 532 BC, not long after the Persians came and conquered the Babylonians. That's when this book was written or finished. And it was written by Daniel, this Jewish man who was one of the original exiles from Judea to Babylon, one of the first exiles that Nebuchadnezzar took from Judea and took him back to Babylon. Now turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. And in the first two verses of the book, as it usually happens to be in, in many of the biblical books, often the opening of a book captures the essence of the book. And Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, gives us the essence of the book, the kernel of the theology of the book of Daniel, the essential message here. And look at verse 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's history. Verse 2 is what's going on in the spiritual realm. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Those two verses, although they're really short and they don't seem to contain a lot, actually contain basically all of the theology in Daniel in a, in a nutshell, right? That what's happening in history isn't happenstance and that the Lord is truly the one who's allowing these things to happen, who's the author of what's going on. He's the one who allows Israel to be taken captive. There's reasons why he does. It has to do with the covenant of that Israel made at Mount Sinai. God is in control. And really, the rest of the book is just kind of unpackaging this major theme. God is in control. 
God is sovereign. That word sovereignty means he's the supreme ruler. How many of you believe God is the supreme ruler of all things? There's no one who rules God. There's no one who's above him, right? That's what it means to say that God is sovereign. So if you believe that, you believe in the sovereignty of God. And this theme is repeated over and over and over again as we go through it, the book of Daniel. I'm not going to spend time going over it. It's too much. You can listen to the sermons that we've recorded in the past. There are two major divisions of the book of Daniel. There's the divisions, the, the divisions of the book of Daniel are actually linguistic. So the first section of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. And the second section of the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew. And this is actually a literary style that Daniel is employing. The Aramaic section is from chapter 2 to chapter 7, through chapter 7. And the Hebrew section is chapter 8 through chapter 12. The first chapter serves as an introduction. It is written in Hebrew. And if you remember when we were going through the, uh, the series earlier, when we were going through the book, I mentioned that the Aramaic section has a very interesting chiasm. You remember what the, the, the word chiasm means? The chiasm is, a, again, a, it's a literary structure that Daniel's employing, and it's a structure that authors will use to emphasize their point. And it's, uh, it's got a structure that builds up to a certain point, and then it uh, winds down once again. And so, for example, there'll be a structure like A, B, C, B, A. A and A will be similar, B and B will be similar, but C will be uh, central, and you can, you can see that structure. So, for example, chapter 2 of the Aramaic section and chapter 7 of the Aramaic section are very similar. That's the A. And they are both giving a prophetic program, a prophetic map of what God is doing in history and what he's going to do in the future. Then chapter 3 of the Aramaic sec- section and chapter 6 of the Aramaic section have, again, a very similar story. And if you remember, chapter 3 is the Hebrew... Uh, men are thrown into the fire and they're miraculously delivered. Chapter 6 is when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and he's miraculously delivered. And this, this points to God's deliverance of the righteous. He will deliver the righteous. And then chapter 4 and chapter 5 constitute the C section. And that emphasizes, well, what are those two chapters about? You've got Nebuchadnezzar turned into a bovine, right? And you've got uh, Belshazzar, the king, slaughtered the night that he's parting. And in both chapters, the essential theme is you need to realize that God is the one who's in control. He rules o- over heaven and earth, and he sets up the rulers, and he can take the rulers down, and you don't have any power whatso- whatsoever. All of your glorying is false and wrong. And that's an es- that is the essential point of the Aramaic section. That God's got a program, God's going to deliver the righteous from their persecutors, their proud persecutors, and God's going to humble the proud persecutors. Keep that in mind. He's the one who's in control. The Hebrew section of Daniel from 8 to 12 is a little bit different. It focuses more explicitly on Israel. We're not here just talking anymore about general principles. God's in control. Um, God's going to deliver the righteous. God's going to judge the proud. We're actually now getting more specific. The principles, the program are less general. We're looking at Israel's prophetic program 
explicitly mentioning them, explicitly, explicitly mentioning events, people who are going to be involved in their story. As we see, their story involves suffering because of their sin, which is all a part of the covenant of Moses. What is Daniel receiving? He's receiving a vision of the future, and it doesn't look good, Daniel. There's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of suffering for your people. Why? Because of their transgressions, because the law of Moses, which they have broken. But we also see that there's hope. We also see that there's salvation. Israel's story involves suffering and pain, but in the end it involves salvation as well. And this is, what, this is what I mentioned before, but this is what makes eschatology and prophetic history all about the gospel. This is what makes it about the gospel because it's a story of conversion. It's a story of law and of grace. And we Christians should be really familiar with this. When we are reading these prophecies in Daniel and we're seeing punishment for sin but ultimate salvation, we, destruction of, of this nation's hope so that they'll put their hope in God, we should be, the, re, the alarm should be going off in our head saying, hey, this reminds me of my conversion. This reminds me of how God brought me to the end of myself. This reminds me of how I came to put my hope in Jesus when I saw that I was a sinner. I saw that I was under the wrath of God. And I turned to Christ and was saved by grace. This is why it's about the gospel. Otherwise, prophetic history is really just it wouldn't be about the gospel. It would just be um, something to interest people who like thinking about the future. It'd be like Jesus came and died for our sins, and until he returns from his, from his ascension into heaven to his return, God just kind of pauses what he's doing and just lets us preach the gospel to all the nations, then he comes back. What's going on in history doesn't really have much direction or any direction at all except for us to preach the gospel as the church. So just preach the gospel until I return. I'm going to just sit back and wait and watch. Whereas, rather, the Bible communicates that even what's going on now in history involves God at work in history, doing stuff in history, and what he's doing in history is gospel stuff, conversion stuff. History is not happenstance even now. God hasn't just put a pause on his activity among the nations, but he's working for the salvation of, of Israel, according to Daniel. And this should be, I believe, easy for us to see and understand as Christians. Now, we come to Daniel chapter 10, and let's turn back to Daniel chapter 10. We come to the conclusion of the book of Daniel. The conclusion of the book of Daniel, the last vision in the book of Daniel which actually involves chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. This is all one unit. In fact, it would, all, it would probably be best if we thought of chapter 10, 11, and 12 as just chapter 10, if it was only one big, really long chapter, because they, they do go together. It's one unit. It's one dialogue, if you are watching carefully. The other chapter divisions in the book of Daniel actually serve really well. Every chapter division so far in the book has been helpful because each chapter division is a standalone uh, unit, but not so with 10, 11, and 12. But we put the breaks in here because of the obvious length it would be and for ease of reading. 
By the way, just an aside, how many of you know where chapters came from in the Bible? It was actually the English who gave us the Bible chapters. Did you know that? In the 13th century AD, an archbishop in England uh, gave us the chapters that we have in our Bible. And the verses that we have in our Bible actually come from the French in uh, the 16th century. In the 16th century AD, the French gave us the verses. So Peter and Paul wouldn't know anything about John 3.16. (laughs) I just love John 3.16. They'd say, what? (laughs) They wouldn't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But if you said, for God so loved the world, then they would say, yeah. Of course, chapter 10, 11, and 12, this last section is connected with what has gone before in the book of Daniel. In fact, all of the visions of Daniel are connected. All of, their, all of them are inseparable. And all of the visions in Daniel are actually talking about the very same thing, just looking at it from different angles and you, giving different details. And there's clues in all the visions that they are connected. So however you interpret one of the visions in the book of Daniel, you have to be able to interpret that vision with including all the other visions also in the book of Daniel. So you can't just come up with an interpretation for one that doesn't fit with the others as well. John Goldengay calls this last vision in the book of Daniel, quote, a reworking of those earlier visions. Although it is, of course, the longest of them all and the most detailed of them all. This last vision is the longest and most detailed. Not only is there a gradation or an increase of detail in this last vision, There's also an increase in Daniel's prophetic experience in this last vision. If you you track his experience from the beginning of the book of Daniel, the first vision, the first revelation we have is actually a dream of Nebuchadnezzar's, which Daniel interprets. Then the next one, Daniel has his own dream. Then the next one, Daniel has a transportive vision where he's actually taken to another place in the spirit. Then Daniel has a vision where he sees an angel with his very own eyes uh, in chapter 9. And now in this vision in chapter 10, 11, and 12, this is the most physically intense one of all. Daniel is literally tossed around like a rag doll in this vision. He's not just interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream by his bedside. He's literally being physically overwhelmed by this vision. This intense encounter emphasizes that this vision is greater than anything that we've seen before. It's, it's really a climax. Chapter 10 serves as an introduction to the revelation of, 11, of chapter 11 and 12, and the nature of it, the intense nature of it, emphasizes the importance of the upcoming revelation. I just want to emphasize that and underline that this morning, that this final revelation in Daniel is truly the most important. Obviously, it's it's supremely important when it is prefaced by an experience similar to the one that Ezekiel had, similar to the one that John has in the book of Revelation, right? There's a lot of similarities here between chapter 10 of Daniel and this, this being that appears before him and what Ezekiel and John, the revelator, themselves had. So we're, we're on a pretty important ground here in this final section. Also, Jesus and Paul both point to Daniel, the revelation of Daniel 10, 11, and 12. Jesus and Paul, in their teachings on the end times, both point to this last revelation, so it's extremely important. 
This morning, we're going to look at three things in this chapter. One, the occasion of the vision, or the reason for the vision. Two, the physically overpowering experience, which emphasizes the importance of this vision. And three, the interesting angelic dimension revealed behind the scenes in this vision. Those are the three things, the occasion, the experience, and the angelic dimension. Firstly, the occasion of the vision. Let's look at verse 1 together. We see here that it's in the third year of Cyrus. Daniel is in his mid to late 80s at this point, which encourages anyone who's up there in years that if you're up there in years, you're actually not out of commission in the Lord's service at all, right? Just being old doesn't mean that you're no longer useful to God and no longer special to God and no longer can't be used by God. Amen? And it's wrong for us as Christians to think that when someone gets old, they're old hat. You know, it's now time for the young people to step in. Young people do need to step in. But look at Daniel. He's in his 80s and he gets this vision. You think if you're going to give a vision this physically intense, you'd give it to a young person, right? But he's not out of commission. He has, it says in verse 1, it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. A message was revealed to Daniel. It tells us a little bit about the message here. It was true, and it was a message of great conflict, or in the Hebrew, war. Message of war and great conflict. Some translations say uh, it will be for a long time, but most scholars are agreed that the best translation is it will be great conflict and war, and we'll see that as we go on. In verse 2 and 3, we see that Daniel at this time is mourning. He's fasting. He's not eating tasty food. He's not drinking wine or anything good. He's not even bathing or cleaning himself. So it's kind of, you wouldn't want to be around Daniel at this time. The chapter doesn't explicitly tell us why Daniel is mourning. If we were asked, why is he mourning? You're not going to find an explicit answer in the chapter, but you will find clues and enough clues to help us see why he's mourning. There are two clues in the chapter. First of all, the chapter gives us the time of his mourning, so we can ask, what's going on at that time? We've got the exact time of when he's mourning. Is there anything going on in history at that time that would clue us into why he is doing that? Secondly, in the chapter, we have the angel's response to his mourning, and there's some clues in his response that show us what the morning is all about. First of all, it's interesting to note that according to verse 4, Daniel is actually fasting during the Passover. And this is a very strange thing for a Jew to do. The first month is the month of the Passover. He's been fasting for three weeks. So at a time when you should be celebrating, Daniel is actually fasting. Very strange. Which means his, his, his morning is very intense. He's in isolation, according to verse 4. He's at the Tigris. He's not there on official business because he wouldn't be fasting and not clothing him, cleaning himself if he was on official business. He's basically isolated himself, and he's by a river, and he's fasting during the Passover. If we ask what's going on in history at this time, we don't need to look any further than in our Bibles to the book of Ezra. This is only a few years after uh, Cyrus has told the Jewish people to go back to Israel and build the temple. And so only a few years, there's a lot of excitement. The Jews went back. But the book of Ezra tells, tells us that when the Jews went back to Israel, 
and they started building the temple immediately. They didn't delay. There was all sorts of conflict with the, with the neighbors, all sorts of conflict with their, uh, their, the countrymen around them so that the building of the temple actually stopped. And so what's going on at that time is, yes, the Jews have returned, and that's exciting, but this is clearly not the return that the prophets promised. This wonderful return in the, pro- in the prophets of, you will return, I will bless you, I will plant you there, none will ever make you afraid again, none will ever bother you again. A lot of Jews at that time thought maybe after the Babylonian captivity, this was the time of the fulfillment of that. But it wasn't clearly. In fact, there was nothing but conflict. So Daniel could be mourning because he's seeing what's happening with Israel. He's seeing, no, the problems aren't over, just like the previous revelations have given, and he's just in sorrow. But let's look at verse 12 here, and let's look at the other clues. Verse 12, the angel says in response, Do not be afraid, Daniel, from, from, for from the first day that you set your heart. What is he doing? What is Daniel doing in his fasting? Is he just sitting there beating his head saying, oh, this is, woe is me, this is so bad, woe is us? According to verse 12, he's actually seeking understanding. And he's humbling himself. This means he's confessing his sins and the sins of his people. He's saying, we have sinned, Lord. He's still doing the Daniel 9 prayer thing even after Israel has gone back to the land. So he's seeking understanding. He's wanting to know and understand what's going on. He wants more understanding on what God is doing. And look at verse 14. This tells us what the understanding is all about. The angel says, Now I have come to give you an understanding about what? Here's what Daniel's wanting to know. About what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. So this gives us a clue as to what Daniel's mourning about and fasting about. He is confessing Israel's sins, seeing the situation in his day, and he's wanting to know more about what will happen to his people in the latter days. Daniel knows, obviously, that it's going to ultimately, in the end, be good for Israel, according to the revelations that he's received already. And he knows it's going to be bad in the meantime, but he wants more details. He wants more explicit details on exactly what is going to happen. And that's exactly what this last revelation gives. This last revelation doesn't really give anything different, generally speaking. You're going to have trials and it's going to end well. But this last detail, this last revelation is only different in that it's full of additional and explicit details. So we see that this last revelation is significant, it's important, and it's about these two things. Let's keep it in mind. Daniel's people, which is the Jews or Israel, and it's regarding the latter days, a phrase that we actually already saw in chapter 2, verse 28. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you this dream to show you what's going to happen in the latter days. So there again is one of those clues that shows us that Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Daniel's final revelation are talking about one and the same thing. So however you interpret the statue vision, it's got to be able to somehow accommodate this last vision and vice versa. The latter days is not just a term for an unspecified future time. 
He's not just saying, he's telling you what's going to happen in the future. But the term in the, in the Hebrew is literally the end of days or the latter part of the days. And we talked about this in chapter 2 with the same phrase, that this is referring to the end. This is not referring to just sometime in the future, tomorrow, a week, 100 years, but the end. And both of these revelations take us to the end, the establishment of the kingdom of God and the end of Israel's troubles forever. Look at verse 21. There's another clue in chapter 10, verse 21. The angel says to Daniel, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. This is what Daniel's wanting to know. He's wanting to know what's going to happen with my people in the last days. And the angel puts it a little differently here. He says, I'm going to tell you what's in the writing of truth. What is the writing of truth? Well, that's not a book that you can find anywhere on the earth. The Bible talks about the books of God in heaven, right? It talks about the books where God judges all of our actions. He puts our actions down, records them, and saves them for the judgment day. Unless, once you become a Christian, the blood of Christ wipes that clean. There won't be any record against you on the judgment day, right? But there is that book of remembrance. But there's a book that, according to Scripture, records all the things that are going to happen in the future. This is an amazing thing to ponder. That God has a book that he's already written where history is already, the, the future has already been told. It's interesting to, to think about it, that God already knows the day of your death. It's already written in the book. He can flip to your name and he can look, not that he needs to, <laughs> the angels can maybe, if he allows them to read it, and there it is. That's the date when you're going to die. And everything is in that book. Psalm 139, that beautiful psalm where David talks about how the Lord created him, knit him together in his mother's womb, knows everything about him, says, all of my days are prescribed in your book. Before there's even one of them, it's all there in the book. Isn't that amazing? Psalm 139, verse 16. It's all there in the book, even before there's even one. Wow. You can't trick God. You can't mess up. He, you're not going to do something where he's going to say, that wasn't on the script, Right? This guy's deviating. Not going to happen. The scholar, the German scholar uh, Kiel, says this about the book. It is the book in which God has designated beforehand, according to truth, the history of the world as it shall certainly be unfolded. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I'm encouraged by the fact that God has pre-written history. And he knows exactly what's going to happen, and he's even ordained it to happen and that God is sovereign and in control of everything that's going to happen. That way you don't have to worry so much about what's going to happen, right? Everything is in his hands. We can trust in him. The messenger was sent to Daniel in verse 12. It says here, because of his mourning and because of his prayers, because of him wanting to understand, the angel was sent in response. This is the main point I'd like to make. As for the occasion of the vision, the angel was sent in response to Daniel. What was the occasion? What was the reason for this vision? It was Daniel's praying. And this shows us that prayer really does do things and God responds to our prayers. I wonder how much we miss out on because we fail to ask God. That's what Jesus said. You have not because you ask not. And God clearly loves to give us understanding and he likes it when we want understanding into the things of the future. I know a lot of Christians will look down on that kind of inquiry. 
But Daniel was doing it, and he's highly beloved. And an angel was even sent in response to him saying, I want to understand what's going to happen to my people in the latter days. Ask yourself, are you interested in what Daniel's interested in? Does that interest you at all? And if it doesn't, maybe you're missing something that Daniel can teach you about. The occasion was Daniel's mourning and wanting to know, and God responded. Secondly, the physically overpowering experience of Daniel, which emphasizes the importance of this last revelation. Verse 5 and 6 show us the main event of this chapter. The main event of the chapter is the appearance of this spectacular, quote, quote, man. It says it's a man, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a human being. There's lots of times in Scripture where a man appears, but it's not really a man, right? Jacob wrestled with a man all night, or three men appeared to Abraham while he was sitting under the oak, right? And on and on. Joshua, are you for us or against us? And I'm not either. So... This man appears to Daniel, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's human. In chapter 12, we see that this man appears standing on the water. Isn't that interesting? He's basically not, on the, he's not standing on one bank or the other. He's standing right in the middle of the river. That's strange. There's a lot of strange things about this man. This emphasizes the supernatural authority and paramount significance of the content of the revelation that's going to be given. One of the big questions people have when they read this chapter is, who is this man? Who is this being? Is it Jesus or is it an angel? That's the big debate. Is it Jesus or is it an angel? And those who believe that this is Jesus point out, point out something. They say, you know, the description of this being here in chapter 10 is virtually identical to the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. You could do that, do, some, do that on your own time. Flip to Revelation 1 and compare the vision. It's basically the exact same. There's not even much of a difference at all. And so they say, hey, look, Jesus appears this way in Revelation 1. Therefore, this is probably Jesus. If it's Jesus, this would be called the Christophany or an appearance of Christ. Those who respond and say, no, no, this is an angel, not Jesus, they argue this way. They say, yeah, sure, I see the resemblance there, but I'd like to point out that most of the features of this being in Daniel chapter 10 can be found in descriptions of angels all throughout the Bible. Now, true, not all in one place, but you can find other places that talk about angels having wearing linen with a gold belt. You can find places where angels have skin like polished bronze. You can find places where angels have lightning faces. You can find it all. So we can't say for sure that this is Christ. And then the other argument they will say is, and isn't it strange to think that Christ is being opposed by another angelic being and that he needs help from Michael? Doesn't it kind of make Christ a little bit, you know, less powerful if we say that this is Christ? Of course, the people who believe that it's a Christophany will respond by saying, yeah, but there's actually two figures in this chapter. The person that's talking to Daniel is actually a different angel. This is Christ who appears in verse 5 and 6, but the person that touches Daniel and speaks to Daniel and says that I'm battling with the prince of Persia is actually a different angel, they'll say. So they'll say there's two figures. I don't believe that we can say dogmatically 
whether it's Christ or an angel, and I'd probably discourage you from taking a strong stand on that. But I'd like to point out that either way, it doesn't change the weight, the weightiness of this encounter. It's a shockingly awesome encounter. John Goldengay actually argues that the, that the ambiguity here is actually what makes it so awesome. He says, the scene has the elusiveness that often cha- characterizes vision reports and the visionary experience itself. And exegesis must preserve this elusiveness. It heightens the awesomeness of what is described. Now look at verse 7. Here we have a reminder that the supernatural is beyond the natural. It's beyond the physics or the classical mechanics of the world. Because here Daniel sees something that's real that his buddies don't see. Kind of like the Apostle Paul. The, the, the Lord spoke to him. It's a little different. Daniel here sees something the others don't see. Paul hears something the others don't understand. We're reminded that the supernatural is beyond our comprehension and our explanation with the science that we have. And the supernatural affects us physically. Brothers and sisters, the physical mechanics of the universe is upheld by God and only works because of God. And God can at any time overrule it when he wants because he's sovereign. He's above even the laws of nature. Some people like to say that God is bound to the laws of nature, and that's absurd. Jesus made bread out of thin air, right? That's absurd. He walked on water. He is supernatural. He's the creator of it and the upholder of how the natural world works. And we only function as we do because, not because of the laws of nature and the laws of physics, but because of God, ultimately. So it would be wrong for us to think, you know, everything's going to happen tomorrow just like it happened today. Because why? Well, that's just how the laws of nature works. We can say, if God doesn't do anything tomorrow with the laws of nature, if he doesn't overrule them tomorrow, everything will happen like they've always happened. Because there are laws of nature. If God doesn't do anything, it's going to go on the same. But God may overrule, right? And so it would be wrong for you to, to analyze your life or pr- to predict your future or to make all of your judgments and all of your decisions based upon only what can naturally be possible. True or false? We're not just naturalists. We're supernaturalists. Amen? We believe in the physical laws of nature. We believe that God upholds them and can overrule them. Look what happens to Daniel. He didn't choose to be flown around like this. But from verse 8 through 11 and 15 through 19, he's being tossed around like a rag doll. He, the emphasis here, if you recall, is about him losing all of his strength. He has no strength to stand up, no strength to stay awake, no strength to speak. The angel has to give him all of his strength to do everything, right? And that is absolutely true, not just for Daniel, that he must be strengthened to do anything, but that's true for all of us. We are all found to be nothing apart from God. No one can decide, I don't care about God, I'm going to defy God, I'm going to do my own thing because I got the laws of nature and the laws of nature and I are going to figure this all out. We cannot stand, we cannot speak, we cannot hear, we cannot think, we cannot be awake, conscious without God upholding us. 
we truly, as Paul said, live and move and have our being in him. Every step that you take, every food that you eat, every time you go to bed, everything is a gift of God. Don't ever forget that. Don't think that it's just natural. It's upheld by God. He can take it away at any time. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. I'm thinking rightly and I choose to think rightly for the rest of my days. God says no. No more thinking rightly for you. God could give you vertigo at any time. You know, it's, it, one of the things that's so fascinating to me is this whole sense of, this whole issue of balance. You know, we take it for granted. Of course I can balance. I got two feet. I can just stand here and balance myself. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how it all works. But from what I've heard, the issue of balance is this really uh, precise, minute thing in your ear. And God could just take it away. And even though you've got your body and it's all fine, you couldn't even stand up straight if you wanted to. You're just on the ground. You can't even think right to... Right? And he can just do that. And that's what vertigo is. People just lose their balance. It's an amazing thing. It's a gift. Everything that you have is a gift. Even your ability to move. So here we have another graphic example of the central theme of Daniel. That God's in control of everything. He's sovereign over nature. Sovereign over you. And brothers and sisters, people should be humbled when they think about this. People should be humbled when they read the book of Daniel. People should give thanks to God when they reflect on this. We should be giving thanks to him for everything we have. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And we are nothing. Not even our existence can we have apart from him. Amen? And yet, Joyce Baldwin writes, such a reaction, what's happening to Daniel here, is a salutary reminder of the majesty of our God and of the amazing condescension of the incarnation. Because when you think about it, wait, Eli, or Bible, or Daniel, you're telling me that we're nothing? We're telling you we don't have anything apart from God, not our existence, not our ability to balance, not our ability to speak, not our ability to think, nothing apart from God? Then why should God care about us if we're just nothing, Right? And as Baldwin's saying, the fact of our nothingness apart from God shows us the amazingness of the incarnation, the amazingness that God loves his creatures, that he cares about you. Because probably most of us with this revelation, oh, you're really nothing? Well, I don't care about you anymore, right? But God cares about you because you're his creature. You're his creation, He's upholding you. He's made you. He's given you existence. He's given you the ability to think and to move and to have your being. And he loves you even though you're nothing. Even though not only not are you just nothing, you're a sinner. He's allowing you. He's giving you the ability to use your body and mind to sin against him, to hurt him, to grieve him. And he loves you. He's a, giving you that ability. What an amazing God. And I think it's important that we don't, we aren't only reminded of our creatureliness and our nothingness, but it's important that we are reminded again and again that we're loved by God. Amen? If you're just hearing all the time, you're nothing, you're nothing, you're nothing, it's true, but it's only half true. Because you are loved deeply, amazingly, incomprehensibly by your Creator. Think about that. 
And look at verse uh, 11 as well as verse 19. Daniel is called twice here beloved or highly esteemed. If you remember in the Hebrew, it's the word chamad, which means greatly desired. Here, this should blow us away. God greatly desires you, you creature who can't even think or talk or stand without him strengthening you. You are greatly precious to him. And that's true for all of us, all of you. And Spurgeon says this wonderful thing. It did not do Daniel any harm to know that he was greatly beloved of God. Some people are always afraid of that. If Christian people obtain full assurance and receive a sweet sense of divine love, they will grow proud and be carried away with conceit. Don't you have any such don't you have any such fear for other people and especially do not be afraid of it for yourselves. I know of no greater blessing that can happen to any man and woman here than to be assured by the Spirit of God that you are greatly beloved of the Lord. Amen? How many of you know you need that assurance? You need to know that you're precious and beloved of God. And God shows you that you are through the Scriptures and through His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent for you. Of course, the danger here is when you forget you're a creature. When you think, I'm greatly beloved, and you just completely forget that you're also nothing. What makes it so amazing that you're greatly beloved is your creatureliness. Lastly, the angelic dimension of this chapter. Now, for most people, this is the most interesting aspect of the chapter. As it talks about these angels. Look at verse 13 and verse 20 to 21. These are the, these are the passages we'll focus on here. The prince of the kingdom of Persia with, withstanding me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And also... Look at verse 20 and 21. This is one of the few places in the Bible where the curtain is pulled back and we see behind the scenes into the heavenlies, into a a world that is foreign to us of angels and warfare. There's a lot of speculation about this and we are limited in what we know and can know about this. The theologian James Denny says about these, these angels, we are now in regions where we cannot speak of it from experience. We cannot speak of it from experience. Here's what we can say. There are real, real unseen entities that oppose each other and that are related to earthly entities. I think that's what we're warranted to say from Daniel chapter 10. There are real entities or beings that are in the heavenlies that oppose each other and that are related to earthly entities. Michael is called your prince. Michael is the prince of Israel. And you can contrast that with the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece. And what happens on earth is due to what happens in heaven. What happens on earth is due to what happens in heaven. There's another place where the curtain is pulled back. You remember the book of Job? And that's the frustrating part of the book of Job, by the way, because Job doesn't know what's going on in heaven. We do, right? Or read the readers of the book have this, have this insight that Job doesn't have. So he's saying, why did God do this? And we're saying, because of 
Satan asked him if you're worshiping him for nothing. But he doesn't know that. So we see what he doesn't see. But the curtain is pulled back, and we see that. Why did the, the storm take away all of his, his house and his children? And why did the bandits come and, and kill and plunder? Was it happenstance? Was it just an earthly thing that the heavens were responding to? No. It was actually a heavenly reason. Hendrik Burkhoff, in his book, Christ and the Powers, he comments on Colossians 1.16, where it says that all things were created by Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, invisible and visible, powers and principalities. He says this, that creation has a visible foreground, which is bound together with and dependent on an invisible background. Here we see who really is the prince over Persia. It's not Cyrus. Cyrus thinks he is, but Cyrus is not sovereign. Cyrus is not in control, but God is. And there's this prince, this angelic prince that God has created to govern Persia. And of course, God is over that angelic prince. But it's not Cyrus, it's this angelic prince. Satan is also called the prince of the world. That's a big, that's a big domain, isn't it? The prince of the world. Prince of this age and this world. And that men walk according to his ways, and his deceit. The question is, how, do this, how does this invisible realm and how does this visible realm relate? How do they affect and influence one another? And that's a very difficult question, but we have a few keys in Scripture, how they relate. I think it's very important, first of all, to exclude any notion of the heavenlies being our puppet masters, that they don't relate as puppets to puppet masters. If that were the case, we would be entirely irrelevant, wouldn't we? Because we're just wood, and the, the angels are just making us do what they want us to do, and, and we are irrelevant. There's no sense in Scripture that we're irrelevant. And there's other keys that show us that's not how it works. For example, in this chapter itself and in the context, we have key words like protection. Look at verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Look at chapter 11, verse 1, which is a perfect example of how these relate. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. So we have these key words, protection. I think of Psalm 91, verse 11. He shall give his angels charge over you so that you shall not strike your foot against the stone. God sends his angels to serve and to protect his people or those whom he chooses to protect, even a heathen, Darius the Mede. We see here the word of encouragement, which can also be the word strengthen. We see the concept of strengthening all over Daniel chapter 10. It's, kind of a, it's actually a key word in Daniel chapter 10. He strengthened me, he strengthened me, he strengthened me, he strengthened me over and over and over again. I, I have the ability to do what I do because of this angelic strengthening that comes from God. Elsewhere in the Bible, we, we find key words like lying or deceiving. Think of the Garden of Eden, how Satan came to Adam and Eve, and he didn't just pull, them, pull their strings like a puppet, but Satan spoke to them in lies and deceived them and 
caused them to eat from that tree. Or Revelation chapter 20 at the other end of the Bible, where it says Satan will be thrown into an abyss so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. There's a key word, deception. First Chronicles chapter 21, why don't you turn there? You'll see again this heavenly and earthly interplay. First Chronicles 21 verse 1. This is one of those interesting stories in the Old Testament. There's many of them. But and also notice the similarity of the of the um, of the language. You'll you'll see it again and it comes up several times in Daniel as well. This idea of angels standing up to do stuff. 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 it says, "Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel." Isn't that interesting? So here, David, of course, he's oblivious to what's going on, but David decides to give a census of Israel, and that was sinful. But in the background, it says Satan stood up against Israel. There's combat there. Satan is fighting and wanting to harm Israel. And so what does he do? He puts the thought into David's mind to count Israel. There's there's an ancient pseudo Epigraphical writing that's not included in the Bible called the Ascension of Isaiah, but it does give us a, a thought on how people thought about this interplay between heaven and earth. I'll quote from it. Notice the similarities. The prince of unrighteousness who rules this world is Belial. Now this Belial rejoiced in Jerusalem over Manasseh and strengthened him in his leading to apostasy and in the lawlessness which was spread about in Jerusalem. So there's other people in Jesus' day, this was when this was written, who thought of angels and demons strengthening human beings to do the things that they do. They strengthen, however, you in what you are. So they put a thought into your mind, and they know that if you're the certain kind of person that's going to eat that lie, then they'll put it in there, and they're going to give you the idea of what to do. Go number Israel, David. And David goes, yeah, that's a really good idea. Eat from that tree, Eve. Yeah, that's a really good idea too. You see, it's not them being puppet masters, but it's them strengthening you in your own sin, giving you uh, suggestions and lies. But the the opposite is also true with good, that God strengthens us in our faith as well. But here's where many people go wrong. And they, they go to Daniel chapter 10, and they see this opposition in the heavenlies, and they think, ah, so what's going on in the heavens and the earth is a kind of dualism. Dualism means good versus evil, fighting against one another, equal opponents. And they look at Daniel chapter 10, and they say, Daniel chapter 10 is a perfect example of spiritual warfare. In 1986, a book was published that was extremely famous uh, and popular, Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. Maybe some of you have read it. And that book really captures this error, this, this idea of dualism, that basically in the invisible realm around us, there's angels and demons and they're fighting. Daniel 10 does say that. But there's this sense of dualism, which doesn't mean there's any sovereignty it's that the good and the bad are equal and they're fighting each other and it 
ultimately depends upon our prayers what's going to happen, whether the victory is going to be for the good or for the bad. And in that book, there's lots of scenes where the angels are losing because the people aren't praying. But when the people pray, then somehow their angels' arms get a little bit stronger and they're able to kill the demons. And they'll point to Daniel 10, and this is sort of where they'll try to find this idea. They'll say, look, Daniel's praying. The angels are fighting. It's because of Daniel's prayers that this angel won. So there's the, the basis for that. But they missed the whole point of the book of Daniel when they say that. You are not in control, Keith. And what happens is not depending on whether you pray, ultimately, but upon God. God is in control. And look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. God is the one who's in control. And not only on earth, but he has to be in control in heaven if he's going to be in control on earth too, right? If there's this heaven and earth relationship. Look at Daniel 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will, where? In the hosts in heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Nothing happens but by the permission of God. No rebellion on earth, no rebellion in heaven happens apart from the permission of God, and all is for his purpose. You remember in 1 Chronicles 21, it says Satan stood up to, uh, against Israel and, and David counted. You know, in, in the book of Kings, it actually doesn't even mention Satan. It says God moved David to count Israel. Isn't that interesting? So it says Satan did it. Well, it says God did it in Kings and Satan did it in First Chronicles. Who did it? Yeah. Yeah, God and Satan did it. Satan is a tool an instrument of God, God allows Satan to tempt David and God allows David to even sin. God is in control. Or you remember in, in uh, 1 Kings 22, the lying spirit that was sent to, into the false prophets to deceive uh, King Ahab, Ahab, or Ahaz, I can't remember which one it was now. And he goes and he does something that's, that ultimately ends up in his destruction but it was because God sent a lying spirit into the mouth of the prophets to deceive him unto his destruction. Or in the book of Job also, where did those bandits come from? From Satan. Yeah, but they all, ultimately they came from God. For when those bandits did their dirty work, Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So no, there is no dualism whatsoever. In scripture, And Daniel is not even involved in spiritual warfare in this chapter. He's totally oblivious as to what's going on in the heavenlies. He's not on his knees praying against demons. He's not on his knees saying, let the angel win in the combat. He's on his knees just mourning and asking for understanding. He's oblivious. And it is true, the Bible says we wrestle against flesh, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. But in context, that's all about the, we fight their lies and their deceptions that they put into our minds by the weapons of God, the armor of God, which is the gospel, the truth, our faith. Amen? So we are in combat with these evil spirits, but again, it's in, it's in our mind, and it's a battle of lies and a battle of truth. 
Exorcism is, of course, an interesting exception in the Bible when it comes to demons, but exorcism is not the solution to the world's problems. The gospel is. Jesus Christ is the solution to the world's problems. And people can get so wrapped up in what's called spiritual warfare and fighting demons, they forget that Christ Jesus and the gospel is the solution. You can cast a demon out of somebody and it's not going to make him better if there's no gospel. And in Matthew chapter 7, 22, people said to Jesus, didn't we cast out all sorts of demons in your name? And he says, I didn't know you, you lawless one. The Bible gives us our priorities. And the priority in the Bible is not for us to be all wrapped up in the heavenly warfare that's going on up there. We're supposed to be aware of it. We're supposed to acknowledge it. We're supposed to acknowledge it so that we might be humble and learn some lessons from it. But we're not supposed to say, if that's what's going on up there, I'm going to get my sword and join the fight up there. Well, you join it in different ways. But you don't just join it by focusing on that. Our realm is here on the earth. Our priority is here on the earth, thinking about the truth. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters says this. Excellent point. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, del- they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. The Bible reflects our priorities. But nonetheless, in closing, the curtain is pulled back and for a purpose. And we must remember that spiritual factors, Joyce Baldwin says, prove to be all important in human history. That we need to learn from this that there's more going on than meets the eye. And there's more to Israel's history and there's more to world history than meets the eye. That's a really important thing for us to acknowledge. Because by acknowledging this, we are delivered from the foolish idea that everything is happenstance and there's not more than meets the eye. Such and such happens and that's all there is to say about that. But that's not what the book of Daniel shows us. Daniel shows us, and he himself is learning, of powerful forces at work in the heavenlies involved in Israel's story. And what happens on earth reflects what's happening in the heavens. Nothing is happening by happenstance. All is truly spiritual. God is in total control. Nothing is insignificant, but is full of significance. We are not a pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan says, just floating in the infinite galaxies and and the stars out there without any meaning or relevance whatsoever, Daniel pulls back the curtain and says, everything that's going on on this little piece of rock involves angels fighting in heaven. It's very significant, very important. Don't lose sight of it. Paul even says that our salvation in Ephesians 3.10 is a demonstration of the wisdom of God to these powers and these principalities. And I'd like to ask this question in closing. What will the salvation of Israel mean to the powers and the principalities? This is what they're always fighting over. What will the the salvation of Israel mean to these powers and principalities? What will it communicate to them? What would the ultimate defeat of Israel mean to these powers and principalities? These are questions that Daniel 10 raised and show us that everything that's happening has a purpose and a plan and is significant. 
Israel's history is staggering with significance. God's name and his glory is bound up with them, both in heaven and on earth. God will be glorified as the God of sovereignty over all things, the God of righteousness, and the God of grace through Jesus Christ. And he will be glorified forever and ever and ever. So let us today who know him, who have been saved, who have understood these matters and have recognized that we are not something apart from God, not our existence, not our being, not our moving, not our righteousness. Let us who know him rejoice today and be amazed at our awesome God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these windows, these pulling back of the curtain. Help us to realize that there is more going on than meets the eye in our lives and in history. Help us to be conscious of this and to be amazed. You truly are amazing, Lord. We acknowledge you this morning. We acknowledge that everything we have comes from you and nothing is of ourselves. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.